Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we have a really special show today. Um, I uh, was up in Rhode Island, where I often want to be, uh, last week, and I arranged to have an interview with uh, my senator, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, the Democrat from Rhode Island. Um, and uh, Senator Whitehouse has been... Um, basically a gadfly in the side of of the Senate of Congress in, in its entirety uh, because of the 25-minute speeches that he gives every single week that session that Congress is in session and has done for the last uh, almost three years. So I think he's up to about 127, 128 of these speeches, each one dealing with a very specific topic related to climate change. So he's a bit of a rock star hero in my mind, um, not quite on the level of David Bowie, alas, but uh, nevertheless, uh, still quite uh, remarkable. Um, guy and uh, and this is an interesting conversation. Like I initially thought, we would talk about sort of food policy and do we need a national food policy director and so forth. And then um, that's not his bailiwick. It's not his wheelhouse. His thing is is oceans and fisheries because he's the Rhode Island state senator and that's a big industry for Rhode Island. So um, he's very interesting on that subject. But he's very the, – the really interesting part about this interview, I thought, was, um, was sort of uh, explaining or laying bare the mechanisms of lobbying and how it works. Um, so we had a lot of talk about sort of – uh, companies like Unilever and uh, General Foods, Nestle, and so forth—you know, Pep- Pepsi and Coke—and uh, their their attitudes toward climate change. He has some interesting opinions on that. And then listen for the part where I ask him about um, whether or not uh, the fossil fuel energy could ever be sued uh, for RICO. Um, which is racketeering uh, the way the uh, tobacco industry was, and he has a he has a couple of really sort of uh, almost terrifying comments about that. So um, anyway, stay tuned, and uh, we're going to have a quick sponsor drop before we go into the tape, um, and then you will be hearing me with uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the state of Rhode Island uh, talking about fossil fuel lobbying and um, the impact of climate change on agriculture going forward. I can't do this no more. I won't do this no more. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Uh, good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we have a very special episode for you. I'll be interviewing uh, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, one of my favorite legislators ever. And to give you a brief background, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse served as Rhode Island's Director of Business Regulation 
Gotta love that. Under Governor Bruce Sundland, he was elected Attorney General of Rhode Island in 1998, a position he, in which he served until 2003. On November 7, 2006, Rhode Islanders elected him to the United States Senate, where he is a member of the Budget Committee, the Environmental and Public Works Committee, the Judiciary Committee, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and the Special Committee on Aging. He is the ranking member of the Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism and on the Subcommittee on Fisheries, Water, and Wildlife. Welcome to the program. Senator. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. So um, one of the things that I so enjoyed in preparing for the program was reading your time to wake up addresses on climate change to your colleagues in the Congress. Um, give us a, a thumbnail of sort of how that that whole program of yours started and how long you've been doing it and why and just kind of the, the general reception you get for doing it. There were some very dark days for the climate movement after um, the Waxman-Markey bill passed the House, yeah, and for some reason the administration completely lost interest in climate change as an issue. We wouldn't pass anything on the Senate that would have gotten at least into a conference with the House bill that people had heroically bet their careers to pass over wow. there. And after that, there was this long period in which the Obama administration would not use the words climate and change in the same paragraph. And there was silence on the Senate floor, and yet the facts and the evidence kept piling up. So I just wanted to make sure that people knew that somebody at least was still paying attention yeah. to reassure environmentalists that there was, you know, the fire had not completely gone out, and to prod our Republican colleagues to pay attention to this, and frankly at the time also to prod the administration, which was not having its finest hour on this issue. Well, I think I, I think it's safe to say at the, as we're approaching the end of the Obama administration, he really was so hamstrung trying to get uh, movement forward on health care law that you know expending political capital on environmental issues is probably just a non-starter for him. I mean, I'll, I'll do anything to defend President Obama. I yeah. absolutely love the guy. Um, I don't care what anybody says and whatever failures he's had. I don't think are his fault. <laughs> Um, and but, it's turned out recently that he's, you know, they've he's, turned the corner and come back onto this issue, and they've done a terrific job with the Clean Power Plan, with the yes. Paris Accords, with the China agreements, with the uh, fuel standards. I mean, one thing after another, they've yeah. been... He's been a busy bee. He's been busy, and he's been good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can't but say I'm surprised. there was this period... Sure. In which I felt something need to be said, some light need to be. Well, somebody still, had to keep the standards. Somebody had to keep the standards. Yeah. And tell us how many of these you have given now? I think we're around 120. So we're talking over two years, every single week, you deliver one of these barn burners. Um, and yeah, by the way, a lot more over three years, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. we're out of session. Because you're not, right. And the, so I'm, I do it every week when we're in session. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just want to tell listeners that all of the speeches have been uh, archived on your website. And so anybody who wants to read them or watch them on YouTube can see them on the Sheldon Whitehouse uh, website at any time. And I, I highly recommend them as very entertaining and, um, and eye-opening reading. And it's not the same speech no. week after week after week. You do a, a completely different it speech. It's fantastic. You do, uh, you know, whatever you find an issue and you stick to that and you stick that to them. Well, I love it. That's one of the frustrations about this issue is that there's so many things that need to be said. Yeah. And so from a speech-making point of view, it's an 
opportunity, but it's sad that Congress isn't paying more attention to an issue that is so. I don't think so it's many. just sad. I think it's criminal. Yes, yeah, and I'm it's, sure it's, other it's people do not too. Congress's finest hour, and I think. Yeah. Congress has been corrupted by the fossil fuel industry in scandalous ways. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But let's talk for a second, because you, when I first heard you speak a few months ago when we initiated our contact, uh, you were in Jamestown and you were kind of doing a little town meeting. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about the health of the oceans and the impact of climate change on uh, oceans, marine life, uh, fisheries, and so forth. Can you give us a little uh, update on the latest research and how global warming is affecting fisheries in yeah. Rhode Island in the East and West Coasts. Yeah. Sure. Um, the oceans are really climate change's true witness. Yeah, the bellwether. The um, warming of the sea you measure with thermometers, the rising of sea levels you measure basically with glorified yardsticks, and the acidification you measure with simple pH tests like students do when they have a lab, a, a uh, aquarium. Well, like you do when you have a swimming pool. (laughs) Yeah, it's not complicated stuff. And so the whole denial apparatus wants to avoid talking about the oceans part of climate change Mm -hmm. because they can't find any place to use their denial. It's too obvious. It's too clear. And so I think it's really important that we focus on that. What we're seeing is things like the winter flounder fishery. Mm-hmm. which used to be a big Rhode Island fishery, a significant cash crop. You drive over the bridges yeah. uh, to Newport and Jamestown in the winter, and you would see the trawlers out working the winter flounder catch. And the bay is up about 3 to 4 degrees mean winter water temperature now, and that's changed the way the winter flounder works, and they're really not there any longer. It's a 90-plus percent crash wow. to the point where it's really no longer a catch. Uh-huh. You go to the West Coast and you see things like acidification starting to clobber the oyster fisheries. Right. And it's even starting to affect the pelagic fisheries. Mm-hmm. There's a new study that shows that half of the pteropods, which is a little free-swimming oceanic snail whose yeah. little snail foot has been evolved into a wing so it can fly in the ocean. And it's the baseline food for a whole bunch of creatures, including the salmon, which we make a very important human fishery of. Yeah. And this study showed that 50% of them had severe shell damage because the ocean, being acidic, eats away at their shells and prevents them from growing them in a healthy way. So you lose a species like the pteropod, and you've kicked a block out of the bottom of the food chain, and who knows what collapse ensues, but it'll have a big effect, particularly on the salmon fishery. Wow, that is powerful medicine. Um, Let's talk a little bit about one of your weekly speeches. Um, In October, just this past year, you focused on the willingness of major food manufacturers, such as General Mills, Nestle, and others, to address climate change in their own corporate structures. But can you describe what kinds of measures they would have proposed that would require congressional support? Are there things that Congress can do to help them achieve their sustainability goals, or are they just expected to make it up as they go along and sort of essentially suit themselves? Well, um, the food industry, the Unilevers, the General Mills, the Cargills, the Cokes and Pepsis, you can, from a lot of positions in the food industry, um, these companies see that the changes that are happening in our climate, in our environment, in our oceans, uh, 
are going to be a real business problem for them. And so they have been really deliberate and really responsible about trying to clean up their sustainability and to try to clean up their carbon footprint Mm -hmm. and to try to adapt to the changes that they can't avoid that are coming at us as a result of our profligate carbon pollution. Um, What they have not yet done is to organize in any serious way in Congress. And that, I think, is going to be the next big final winning step in the climate battle in Congress. When America's major and responsible corporations, the Unilevers, the Nestle's, the Cargill's, the Cokes, the Pepsi's, the General Mills, all of those people and others actually come to Congress and say, guys, you've been messing around on this for too long. You're not going to get our support unless you line yourself with what we know to be true, what we're spending millions of dollars to work with. Yeah. And, you know, we need you. So they were great about the Paris Climate Agreement, and I think partly because of that corporate support, the opposition to it has been very muted and perfunctory by the Republicans. Interesting. But that they've no company other than the fossil fuel industry lobbies Congress in a serious way about climate change. None. So that leaves the fossil fuel industry with an open field to try to intimidate and bully particularly Republican members who they tried more to beat up on than on us. And, you know, if you're a senator from Georgia and everybody in the fossil fuel industry says we're going to land on your head if you cross us on climate change and Coca-Cola isn't saying, don't worry, we've got your back, right? then you've got a problem on your hands. Right. So it's important for Coke and Pepsi to say, we've got your back. We're going to engage on this. We're going to engage with Congress. And I think that will be unbelievably important in helping Republicans, many of whom know better than their party line, to follow their consciences and have the political freedom to do the right thing. Right. Interesting. I mean, there was a report that came out uh, called Feeding Ourselves Thirsty from Ceres, which is yeah. a um, corporate, you Terrific know. Terrific group. Great group. Yeah. And, um, and they they did a report card on a lot of big food companies, and including Coke and Pepsi, Cargill, yeah. Archer Dan- Daniel Midland, um, about their preparedness for climate change in terms of water use. And of course, for most of these companies, water use is key yeah, to Coke everything. Pepsi, if you're Coke and Pepsi. <laughs> but even if you're Cargill, it's key to your your soy and corn yeah. to your pig farms to your whatever and um, and they were I'm afraid they none of them got very good report cards but clearly they're thinking about it yeah. so um, at and that, in a lot of ways they're really trying hard mm-hmm. and doing new this is a new area for them it is and I think I would give them uh, you know a minus for the work that they're doing inside their corporate mm-hmm. sphere to try to address climate change and their own contribution to it yeah where I don't give them good marks is being willing to take the next step and come to Congress and say, guys, you can't be pretending this isn't real. Right. We're not going to support people who are... But do- some of them lobby in Congress heavily. The National Cattlemen's Beef, Associ- uh, Meat, National Cattlemen's yeah. Beef Association, the AMI, American Meat Institute, they have an entire week set aside every year for lobby in Congress. And yeah. obviously, they have a vested and, interest in keeping climate change off the agenda for them. climate change on their agenda. No. And when the American Farm Bureau lobbies, right. lobbies from a very conservative, yeah. follow the fossil fuel industry, we're not going to quarrel about climate change 
position. Right. When Coke and Pepsi lobby, they lobby through the American Beverage, Beverage Association. Association. And that association, despite the fact that it represents Coke and Pepsi, has not a thing to say about well, you pointed change. out that they actually are and very the, invested in keeping it off of the Well, agenda. actually, the, the uh, Chamber of Commerce is the one that's really been right. terrible. They're actually, the, the Beverage Association is silent, despite the fact they represent these two companies that have really mm -hmm. strong climate positions. But the Chamber is an adversary. The Chamber is a tool of the fossil fuel industry, and it does everything it can to try to stop any action on climate change in Congress. And I don't know why they would do that, because I think the majority of their com member companies have good, serious policies on climate change, but they allow themselves to be driven and funded by the fossil fuel guys. Well, my observation is often that the trade organizations frequently do not represent the best interests of the members of those trade organizations, a tendency particularly to be the common denominator. when I look at like the NCBA and the AMI, I don't see that they're doing American farmers any favors in the policies that they pursue. But I want to go back for a second to that same speech when you were talking about those food companies. And um, you brought up the fact that you uh, had introduced uh, the carbon fee legislation. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, would that, what is that and what would it accomplish? And where does it stand? The problem with our carbon pollution, the stuff that these big polluters emit, is that it's free to them to emit it. Yeah. We all pay the price. The fishermen who no longer catch winter flounder in Narragansett Bay, right. they pay a price. The people who come into the hospital here uh, just down the road at Rhode Island Hospital in the emergency room with an asthma attack, they pay a price. A lot of people pay a price, but not the people who are doing the pollution. Right. They get to do it for free. It's a market failure. And what we need to do is to put a price on their pollution so that they can start making sensible decisions about how to reduce it. It creates, there's no value proposition in reducing carbon emissions when it's free to pollute. Right. So you got to fix that. So that's what the carbon fee would do. And it would follow the social cost of carbon that the U.S. government has developed. Mm -hmm. And it would be, it would raise a bucket of money. Yeah. But then we take all that money and we turn it back to the American people through tax reductions of various kinds and through corporate uh, contributions back to their state governments so that the state can work on mitigating, work on mitigating in the ways that it's important locally. Because West Virginia has a very different set of problems than Rhode Island from this. And so you need to have separate. So that's the, it, it puts a price on carbon pollution. It will drive the market to solutions. It's also the one solution that every single Republican who has walked this issue through to having to come up with a solution has arrived at. Right. Every Republican, whether it's former Secretaries of the Treasury, former EPA administrators, former members of Congress, whomever, when you get them to, okay, what's the solution? It's always a carbon fee that returns all of its money back to the public. I noticed that so, you call it a fee as opposed to a tax. A tax Is implies that, that the government keeps the money. I see. Okay, very good. And we don't need to have that fight. No, I, we I'm, definitely don't. I'm perfectly don't. happy to have all the money go straight back to the public. Sure. And um, and also, how does this differ from cap and trade, which has been another um, you know proposed solution to forcing polluters to uh, a carbon fee is a simple price uh -huh. that you have to pay wherever you extract or import the fossil fuel. Cap and trade sets limits on 
what emissions can be done. And then to go over it, you have to pay a fee, and you're allowed to trade for the right to pollute, and it sets up a market. So it's very <laughs> complicated by comparison with a simple tax. Yeah. And or a simple, simple fee. Simple fee, yes. And again, we're not keeping the money, and that's why that <laughs> distinction matters. Um, and particularly in the wake of the Wall Street meltdown and all the mischief that was pulled with those mortgage loans, yeah. the confidence that we can trust the financial community to set up a carbon trading scheme is not present right now. Right. So that's a battle that I really don't need to have. It's more efficient to do the carbon fee, and I avoid completely having to fight and defend something that I don't care to defend, which is, don't worry, you can trust Wall Street to trade these things in a fair and sensible way. Yeah, absolutely. As I was driving up here, I was no listening to um, NPR, and, and they were there was a little segment there. They were talking about uh, polling listeners on how they felt about the fact that not one of those Wall Street guys went to jail, that there was literally no repercussion on the industry for the meltdown, and how that has undermined American confidence in the judicial system. And you just... You know, you just bore that out. Not only um, that, but a lot of people left multi-deca millionaires after oh. having misbehaved badly yeah. and didn't even get the money they made clawed back. Well, the fact that Jamie Dimon is still running, you know, Goldman Sachs, I, I don't know. Anyway, um, you, uh, in December, just this past year, uh, you had a wonderful speech about how Coke and, well, we, we talked about this a little bit, so let's move on. Um, but I, I do want to go back to the, you were talking about how the, the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce has really done absolutely nothing to sort of promote any kind no, of climate agenda. The works, um, it's, an, it's an enemy. It's an, they, they fight against everything. Yeah. They're not just neutral, they're, they're anti. Why, why do you think that, that, uh, that Coke and Pepsi uh, and other uh, organizations within the Chamber of Commerce are so passive, though? Why is the Chamber of Commerce so very powerful. I think... Um, I don't think anybody really thinks about them as such an intense organization. I think that corporate America, in some respects, doesn't really want to come and deal with Congress. They will come when they have to, if they need a trade thing or if somebody's going to try to do something to their industry or if you're Coke and Pepsi, if there's a national like sweet drinks tax or if yeah. there's a bottle recycling thing, you know, they'll engage on that. But they don't really make it their career. It's not part of their business model to engage with Congress. The fossil fuel industry is different. The fossil fuel industry depends for its life on massive, massive, massive subsidies from government. So part of their key business model is to be in Congress every day, fighting hard, protecting their subsidies, protecting their position, trying to hurt their opponents in wind and solar and clean energy. And so they're much more comfortable in Congress. For them, this is a daily battle. Mm -hmm. And it's vital to them. There have been reports from, I want to say, the uh, International Monetary Fund that talk about the effective subsidy that they enjoy in the U.S. alone being $700 billion a year and internationally being in the trillions of dollars every year. Wow. So if you are taking advantage of the public to such a huge extent, you need to control Congress in a way that Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Cargill and General Mills and Unilever and other countries co companies don't. 
So I think that's the distinction. You've got these people who are constant presence in the Hall of Congress, always trying to maneuver and manipulate for their own accounts. And then you've got the relatively innocent, you know, uh, it's a foreign country for them. They don't really like going, what's going on. And so the U.S. Chamber gravitates towards the folks who are there all the time. Plus, the fossil fuel industry isn't stupid. If they can take over the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and have it become their mouthpiece mm -hmm. rather than corporate America's mouthpiece, score a big victory. And they've done it. They've scored that big victory. Wow. It's very, very discouraging. Um, let's talk about for a second about the Paris Climate Talks. Um, and uh, one of the main points that were discussed was, and especially um, emphasized by the United States delegation, was the necessity for the accurate monitoring of greenhouse gases or climate emission, you know, un uh, unfortunate emissions, shall yeah. we say, both from agriculture, manufacturing, or whatever. Um, and yet the United States, for example, gives agribusinesses such as meat production and soy, cotton, corn, all of those uh, commodity crops, a free pass on monitoring their emissions. Um, what, what do you think is the solution to that problem? Because that's, well, that's kind of major. <laughs> a carbon fee will make a big difference because mm -hmm. it tips the whole economy back to an even balance right. for fossil fuels and for the first time creates an incentive for people to find ways to reduce their carbon emissions. And if we can get this carbon fee passed, it's going to be a very short period of time before the agriculture community comes in and says, hey, here's this whole regime you've set up in order to control greenhouse gases. Our cattle are emitting enormous amounts of greenhouse gases. Uh, if we can find ways to spend some money to clean that up, can we get some benefit out of the, now that there's a price on carbon? And putting those pieces together becomes very easy, and it becomes a money, potentially a money-making proposition for them to trap methane, and it becomes a right. much more significant cost uh, consideration for them to reduce their own carbon footprint in the um, fuels that they use and in the effort that they put into uh, food production. Would they get some sort of... Um, if they participate in a carbon fee, which they obviously would have to if that becomes the law of the land, um, would they get some sort of benefit on the back end? Would they get a, some or other they, kind of tax incentive? To Because otherwise I see them as lobbying the hell out of Congress and saying we don't want this. And they're not completely without power, these guys. They, uh, I guess two things. One, as consumers, they'd see the effect of the carbon fee in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So they adapt their economic behavior to that new economic system that they were seeing. Then I think once they saw that reducing carbon was a money-making proposition, they'd come in and they'd say, look, can you take some of the revenues that you're bringing in from the carbon fee and help us do what you want us to offset do, the cost to of offset some of it. the infrastructural and, change. And it, yeah. and it would be much better if that developed naturally in that way mm -hmm with the agricultural industry coming in and saying this is what we want, rather than trying to shove it down their throat with a cap and trade or with restrictions on, mm -hmm. you know, we've got enough enemies in the fossil fuel industry without taking on the whole 
agriculture community. If we can get over the first hurdle, then I think the agriculture piece begins to fall into place almost by itself. I hope so. I mean, some of them are doing... Cargill, for example, showed me a phenomenal um, anaerobic digester. This is like five or six years ago at one of their big, you know, it's their sort of gold standard plant out in Fort Collins. And it was very impressive, and it cost them a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and they were they had plans to develop it even further, and I suppose they're putting them in in some of the other big plants. I don't know. But as far as I know, the other big producers, Tyson, Smithfield, National Beef, JBS, they're not doing that. And even where they may have things like that, it tends to be a showcase or a pilot. Absolutely. It hasn't really become the industry standard. standard. Right. And so there's a lot of uh, damage that gets done. Again, there's no value right. to these people in doing the right thing right. because polluting remains free, even though people all across the country are paying the cost in their lives in very real ways. Uh, very real ways. I mean, not the least is our water system heavily polluted by agriculture. I mean, I know it's not particularly your thing as much as the ocean fisheries and so forth, but um, from where I sit in my chair listening to stories about agriculture and farming every week, um, I see what they're doing to our waterways, and I foresee that as being a, one of the major sources of problems in the because of climate change in our in our coming you know decades. Um, I wanted to go to this um, because this really knocked me for a loop. I got to say, Senator Whitehouse, my hat goes off to you here. On May sixth, in two thousand fifteen, you drew the comparison in one of your weekly speeches. You drew the comparison between the fossil fuel industry and the big tobacco industry's playbooks, and you made this quote: uh, "Dr. Brule's report states that their activities span a wide range of activities, including political lobbying, contributions to political candidates, and a large number of communication and media efforts that aim at undermining climate science." And you suggested that the fossil fuel industry could face the same RICO charges as the tobacco industry faced. Do you anticipate that the Justice Department will now launch some kind of an investigation in the wake of those ExxonMobil revelations? I hope they will consider it. Mm -hmm. um, the Attorney General of New York has already launched an investigation under a somewhat similar New York state law. Uh -huh. And... Over and over and over and over again, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, academics, lawyers, former prosecutors, who look at what the tobacco industry did right. to deny that their product caused harm, and what the fossil fuel industry has done to deny that its product caused harm, the overlaps, the similarity is astonishing. Yeah. And if you read Judge Kessler's decision in the tobacco civil RICO case and you remove the word tobacco and health and put in the words fossil fuel and climate change, <laughs> it's what they're doing. <coughs> it is an absolutely precise description of what the fossil wow. fuel industry is doing to the point that the fossil fuel industry has actually taken over some of the organizations that lobbied on tobacco and has even used some of the individuals who were lobbying that tobacco is not dangerous, the science is unsettled, all the same right. stuff that we hear about climate change, and adapted it to climate change. So there's a very, very, I think, powerful um, case to be investigated that the fraud that a federal judge found that the tobacco industry committed 
is actually being replicated like the playbook by the fossil fuel industry because it was politically successful for all those years for tobacco sure. until finally they were called to account. And it's time now for the fossil fuel industry to be called to account, I believe. Do you think Loretta Lynch is, is going to make that happen? It's kind of her call, I, right, to make it a federal it's, investigation. Yeah, it's entirely her call. I think there's pressure building on the attorney general in California to try to do something. Mm -hmm. The attorney general in New York has already done something. Right. Um, there was a lot of work on tobacco that was done before the federal government got involved. Uh -huh. So they tend to be lagging rather than leading indicators. If you, um, But the, I think the issue that... Um, Attorney General Lynch is going to have to face is, is the fossil fuel industry too big to sue? Are they simply so big with so much money and so much power that there's no point taking them on? I, I, I don't, that does not compute. I don't, I mean, it's, it's the United States Attorney General. Yeah. It's our judicial department. Yeah. How can a company be too big to pursue? It's not a company, it's a whole industry. And how could an industry be too big to pursue That's the question. legally? That's the question. And so you're suggesting that their, their power is so extreme that they could shut down an investigation launched by the U.S. Department of Justice? If you read about the way that the tobacco industry defended itself, and all of the mischief that they got up to, setting aside the problem of their product being poisonous and right. deadly, just the mischief that they got up to trying to manipulate the lawsuit, trying to manipulate discovery in the lawsuit, trying to drag things out so that, that I could see. they yeah. were, ex you know, any plaintiff would be exhausted by their endless resources. Um, I think that if you're going to go up against an industry as big as the fossil fuel industry, you've got to be prepared to make a huge investment huh. in time and resources to simply not just get rolled by them. When In my little lead paint case that I did here in Rhode Island, yeah. there were 100 lawyers on the lead paint side that entered their appearance at various times. Wow. And they did stuff like um, send us on a wild goose chase to interview over 100 witnesses they said they were going to call and come the trial day. You know how many of the 100 witnesses they actually called? Zero, right? Zero. Yeah. Zero. So that's the kind of behavior by an industry under legal pressure you have to look at. And when you consider what they will try to do in the right-wing press to beat up the investigation, what their lawyers will try to do to impede it, and what their political clout will be brought to bear to try to accomplish to knock down the investigation, unfund it, whatever, it's a big fight that yeah. you're picking. And there comes a point where we have to face the proposition that conceivably the fossil fuel industry is now too big to be held accountable even by the government of the United States of America. Do you think that's why the Obama administration has failed to prosecute the industry, the uh, financial industry for the same reasons? I too big? I couldn't draw that conclusion. I, th I, I have a different feeling about that. All right. Well, we could pursue that at another time. Um, I guess I'm, I'm com I guess I'm coming to the end of this, but um, gee, that breaks my heart. This has been so much fun. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that's really bugged me um, that I've observed over the last five, six, seven years of doing these interviews. Um, and that is, is that scientific research is no longer independently funded. It's no longer a matter of public money. It is a matter of who is willing to pay. So 
in my case, I, I focus especially on agricultural institutions like land grant universities. But I think this is kind of across the board, mm-hmm. whether you're talking about energy, pharmacology, agriculture, whatever it is. Um, the people who really pay for uh, research are now the companies that will most benefit from research that is favorable to them, and they will completely discard research or bury research that is unfavorable to them. And I'm wondering if you have a a thought about um, whether there is some kind of legislative solution to bringing science back out from under the sort of financial umbrella of industry and back into public service, which is where it belongs. Well, you could put scientific research into three buckets. One is publicly funded, genuine, real research. Mm -hmm. The second is privately funded but legitimate R&D, which we want to encourage because that's how new products develop, that's how innovation happens. And the third, the bad one, is phony science that is developed for the purpose of basically counter-marketing against the real science on public health and safety issues. So all the bogus tobacco scientists who created uncertainty about whether that was really dangerous or not, you know, you go through all the public health issues that pollutants have caused, and there's always some scientist on the other side. And we have to, I think, recognize in this country now, and particularly the real scientific community, has to recognize that in effect there's a new predator in this environment. Mm-hmm. And the new predator is this parallel science that is created for marketing purposes, for propaganda purposes, to offset the real science so that they can make the eternal case that the science isn't settled. The phony science doesn't actually have to win the argument. That's the terrible advantage it has. Right. All it has to do is create enough doubt, particularly when it's propped up by Fox News and all these other groups, that eh, the science isn't really settled. Let me just have another cigarette. Maybe it's not so bad for me, <laughs> right? And then they kept selling cigarettes through all that stuff. Yeah. And the fossil fuel people are doing the exact same thing right. right now. And in the same way that you know we learned that junk food was junk food, we're going to have to learn that junk science is junk science, and so we're going to have to kind of adapt culturally. Because 30, 40 years ago, Science was science. People respected it. Nobody had tried to create a parallel science that apes real science, but instead of being designed for peer review, scientific journals is designed for talk shows and TV sound bites and industry-funded op-ed pieces. Yeah. And it's very easy to fake it. And they've gotten better at faking it. In the bad old days, or in the early days, they created something called the American Tobacco Institute, that was going to be like the big trick. You put the word institute on it, and suddenly it's not the tobacco companies. Yeah. <laughs> now they've named these phony baloney organizations after Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, General George C. Marshall, the hero of the Second World War. They've done a much better job of camouflaging the phony science. And there are probably dozens of groups that are front groups. So it's not always the same. Mm -hmm. It's not the American Tobacco Institute showing up time after time with the word tobacco in it. It's all these unknown groups taking turns and showing up and saying the same thing out of different mouthpieces. It's the same scheme. It's like Hydra, many heads of the same beast. And we have not really learned to adapt to that 
threat because it is a fundamentally dishonest enterprise and it is fundamentally not science. It is public relations in a lab coat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Senator, I think our time is up here. I know I've taken enough of yours. Thank you so, so very much My for pleasure. joining me today. Thank you for coming in. Um, this is exciting, and I hope we get to talk again before as the election cycle rolls out. I'd love to talk to you more about what um, candidates are saying, if anything, about climate change, how climate change can become more of a, of a party platform plank, hopefully, in the Demo- at least in the Democratic side. And uh, just generally check in on what's happening. Well, I would look in, forward to that. And in thank the you office for the of time. Sheldon Whitehouse. Thank you very much, sir. You're really very appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>